Lord Jesus, we pray that as you speak the words of your word to us today, that our hearts would be open as the prophet is heard in our midst and as we eat of the bread from heaven. And Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate this very word that you have given, that we would receive it with our hearts and that we would honor you in the way that we respond. And we pray you would work your work in all of our hearts, applying these truths to us now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now here before us is an incident of casting out a demon. Jesus showed his power and his kingdom in and over the invisible world and over the physical world we live in all in one fell swoop. Those two worlds are very much a part of our existence. And the ancient world into which Jesus came, they were in some ways a lot more aware of the spirit invisible realm and demons than I believe many Christians are today. But Jesus came, however, to bring in his kingdom. And it would involve both the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And we have a picture before us of a parable of what Jesus did, and when, let me say parable, I mean in the phrase of the strong man, not the whole thing. Okay, uh, But we do have this illustration and then even an explanation in this, this parable of what Jesus did as he came into the world to defeat the enemy, to bind the strong man, and to inaugurate his kingdom here on the earth. The world we live in is a very dramatic place. It is the place of a great cosmic battle. And in the midst of all the power and cosmic battles going on, we humans are very weak. We're weaklings in this. We're so easily and quickly run over by the enemy. But Jesus came to deliver us from all of our enemies. He came to empower His church and His people to do battle with the great enemies. And how glorified God is when He can take weak humans... And can, with the Spirit of God, overthrow powers and authorities much greater than we are, all for the sake of His kingdom. But how foolish we are when we neglect to gain our strength from the Lord Himself and in the power of His might. Every day of our lives here will be a new spiritual battles. And we must be diligent and watchful, prayerful and worshipful, loving and serving and always abounding in the work of the Lord, or else we are vulnerable to being overcome by the enemy. Before us in this passage is the essence of Jesus' power. That was the question that was before us. It's the same power that He has given to us to overthrow the dominion of Satan in this world. It is the same power that raised Jesus from the grave and seated Him at the right hand of God the Father that has now been given to His people. The earth is the Lord's, and now Jesus has regained it for humanity. As J.R. Tolkien would say, men were destined to inherit and rule Middle Earth. But here we see that Jesus has regained the entirety of the earth for the cause of His great name and for man. Today, 
you cannot be caught between two worlds. And if you are caught and found between two worlds, time is at hand to make the right choice and to be on the winning side. I think we understand that in this time there is no middle ground, there is no neutral ground, but in many ways we live as though that we, there is. But you cannot have one foot in Satan's kingdom and the other in God's. You cannot be in the world and in God's temple. You cannot be God's. You cannot fellowship as God's people with Belial. You cannot love the world and God at the same time. You will have to make a choice in one direction or the other. If there's ever a passage to reveal this truth, here is an important one for us as we see a clash of kingdoms. As we see power coming to bear in one particular incident where Jesus heals a man. And the first thing we see happening is a great miracle that he performed. Now, Jesus has performed many miracles up till now, but there was something notable that Matthew is revealing here to us that we should stand back and say something wonderful and mighty and powerful has gone on in this particular miracle. He heals a man, and that is how the Scripture reveals that he heals a man, not just merely cast out the demon, but he heals a man who is mute and blind and who is demon-possessed. And the man here between us had both a physical problem and he had a spiritual problem. And the link here between the spiritual illness and the spiritual cause here is something to be noted. Physical problems and health issues and even sicknesses and disease and problems can often be caused by spiritual causes. That is still true today. And here, a demon was involved. And that is still true today. And what Jesus did was quite amazing to all who witnessed it. In verse 23, it says here, and Matthew has been much about crowds and the multitudes, but he says, and now all the multitudes, he now emphasizes a kind of a universality of the crowds and the multitudes of people that were gathered, and it says, and they were all amazed when Jesus did this. Now, multitudes had gathered around before. They had watched him heal. They watched him cast out, and they were, you know, amazed. But in this way, there was a a certain emphatic way that Matthew puts it here. The word amazed means I'm quite beside myself. I'm losing my senses over what I just saw. And all the crowds were losing their senses over what they just saw. They were beside themselves as they could see now what had happened to this man with the power that Jesus wielded. This was not something anyone could ignore, and that was Matthew's point. They had to reckon with this. We have to reckon with this this morning. There have been miracles before, even demon exorcisms, but nothing like what the people were now here observing. And as we are back into that particular situation by faith in the Spirit this morning, we too have to reckon with the power of Jesus, and we're going to have either one of two decisions to make. So much so that were they reckoning it in verse 23, they, many of the multitudes of the crowds began to ask, well, 
Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Now they're asking in such a way here in the grammar as it implies a negative answer, but at the same time it holds out the hope and the possibility that this could possibly be. And there were people that were wrestling with this. What is going on? Could this be the Messiah? Now the way they had figured it and the way they had thought about it was not at all the way that they were understanding what was going on, but now they couldn't deny this power. It was confronting them in a new way. And so they asked the question. The Pharisees, however, in verse 24, rather impulsively, with a hard heart, provide another explanation. He cast out demons by Beelzebub. Now they had thought this before. And yet here they express it in the most depraved response. Beelzebub was first mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 1. In fact, it's the only other time I believe in the scripture of the Old Testament that Beelzebub is mentioned. It's in the reign of Ahaziah. And I would encourage you, perhaps maybe with your families later this afternoon, this evening, go back and read 2 Kings chapter 1. And just read the whole chapter there to gain the understanding and the background of where this particular person is referenced in the great battle that took place. And the two representatives there between King Ahaziah the king and Elijah. Baal Zebub, which was then referenced, it was the use of the word Baal with the A-L, was the god of Ekron. That word means the Lord of the Flies. The term morphed from Baal to Beal, and now the word by the time we get to Jesus' time means the Lord of Filth. The Pharisees were crediting the healing of this man by Jesus to the power of Satan, the Lord of Filth. And what we have in these three verses are really your only two choices that you have. You've only got one of these two choices to you today, and you're going to have to decide on whose side you're on. First of all, the first choice is this truly is the son of David. This is Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Or. He works his power with satanic power. He is from Satan. He is from God or he is from Satan. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. That is only two choices you have to be in today and you are in one of those two kingdoms. God and Satan are the two most powerful beings in existence and yet one is the creation of the other and certainly not equal in power. But a whole lot more powerful than you. And the power in which Jesus is doing all of this comes from one of those two sources. So which is it? And that's what explanation he now turns. Jesus turns and answers critics. He knew their thoughts. Verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself cannot stand. 
Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus here is logically reasoning them toward the truth and a right conclusion. Now, as God would say in Isaiah, he says, now come, let us reason together, thus saith the Lord. And he's calling them to reason with the minds that God has given them. Every kingdom divided against itself will fail. And if Satan's kingdom were divided against itself, it will fail. That is true with any human institution. When families are divided against themselves, they will not stand. Families collapse. We saw this in David's own family at the rebellion of Absalom. There are many examples today where a husband and wife are divided against each other and their family will not stand. Where children and parents are divided against each other, the family will not stand. Families cannot stand when they are divided against each other. That is a principle that is bigger and stronger and more fast than you are. So just remember the next time that you're tempted into an argument with your spouse or that you show rebellion in your heart toward your parents that that familial institution will not stand should you continue in that direction. We see this principle with nations. We see the judgment on Solomon and his kingdom. Because of his idolatry, God split the kingdom in two. And you had the northern and the two and the southern tribes no longer unified. And we see this in churches When unity is destroyed in a congregation, that congregation loses its potency and it will not stand. They turn all of their energies now to trying to address the problems and the internal cancer and they cannot go and profit in the thing that God has sent them to do. And Satan begins to come in in greater force. Let that be an application for us to strive together for the unity of your faith in your homes, with your spouses, with your children, with your brethren. Here Jesus makes the argument that Satan's kingdom would not be able to stand if in fact he were casting out Satan by the power of Satan. It's nonsensical, he says. If Jesus were taking dominion over Satan's kingdom by the power of Satan at hell itself, that is a self-defeating activity. One thing Satan is not is stupid. He might like you to think that he is, but he is far wiser than you are. So he raises the question in verse 27, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? He turns the principle back around to them. Now, the sons of the Pharisees could be referring to, well, it could be referring to their literal sons, or it could be referring to the followers of the Pharisees, much like the Old Testament would call the son of the prophets. No matter which one it was, Jesus was asking them, by whom do your sons cast out demons? In that day, there were known Jewish exorcists, And if they were successful in casting out demons, then they were doing it in the power of God. And that's exactly Jesus' point. If they agreed that their followers were effectively casting out demons, would they then admit that they were doing it by the power of Beelzebub? Absolutely not. They would be certainly 
They would certainly claim that it was only the power of God by which their sons were casting them out. And so Jesus shows the claim of their inconsistency. It is inconsistent to say that the same activity that Jesus is doing, that the sons of the Pharisees are doing, being accomplished by two sources of power, when what they are doing is casting out demons. He's showing the utter inconsistency of their argument. He says, for this reason, they're going to be your judges. They're going to prove you wrong. Because they demonstrate casting out demons is not a demonic work. Now, what he has to do next is once he's established that fact, he's got to go on and distinguish himself from all of these other Jewish exorcists, from all the others who may be casting out demons. He doesn't want to be included in the common lot of the servants that God may have empowered to do the miraculous. Jesus can't be included in the number. He he doesn't want to be just one of the guys. And that's the point of the very next verse in 28. Jesus distinguishes his work as something very unique. He says in verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. He claims that his exorcism of these demons and the power with which he does this is very strong and unique and it has a purpose for behind it. And in this respect, when he did it, he brought the kingdom of God near as, what's, as was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. What he was doing has never been done on a scale like this ever before. And that is what the people would go on to recognize. Nothing like this has ever been seen in all of Israel. They would testify. He wants them to say, he says, I want you to know the ramifications of that. I want you to know that the kingdom of God is drawing near in my ministry at this very hour. It's here. And then he gives them a parable at this point in time, or an analogy, or perhaps an illustration. He speaks in verse 29, For how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Whatever has been done before by the other prophets or by the other in the that they were just really on the fringe. But there is something unique that is going on here. And he is saying, what I am doing in your very presence is I am binding the strong man. The strong man here is, by word of analogy, Satan, who has this world under his sway and under his power. And that has been true ever since the fall of man, back to Genesis chapter 3, where man forfeited the power and dominion of this earth to Satan, that fallen creature. And now Satan has put the veil over eyes and have darkened hearts, and he is the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. He is the one who has governed this world in the hearts of people in his deception against God but now something is different now Jesus' kingdom has come this long prophesied Messiah that would defeat not only the earthly uh, enemies but the great power and have a great triumphant cosmic victory in crushing the head of the serpent as was prophesied from the very get go and this is what 
he's coming to do. He's coming to plunder the strong man's house, and he is going to bind the strong man, and now he can plunder his goods. I don't know if any of you have ever had anybody break in your house and steal anything from you. I've had it happen a couple of times when I was in college. We happened to be away on Christmas break, and whoever came to the house was understanding that there were no, the students had gone home, but they had left their goods. And so there was very little of a threat to them at that time, very little resistance, so they could come in and they could take their time and they could take what they desired to take, and they did. (laughs) They also knew that students probably had insurance, and they would probably replace those dear things that they had run off with and the stereos and the hi-fis and the speakers and all that kind of stuff, and which we did. And the next break came, and they came back a little more prepared. But when you go into something as an enemy or a thief into somebody else's house and you meet resistance... You're going to have to take care of the resistance if you really want to take the goods. And that's the point Jesus is making here. He's coming into the house, a house where there is great resistance, a house in which there was a great defense. And Jesus is not going to back away or run, run away. This is his world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And as He then comes into this world, he comes with a mission, and he's going to bind the strong man so he can plunder his goods and he can bring many sons to glory. And that is what he has been doing ever since he inaugurated the kingdom as he came and he's showing the great power right here. And so here, the kingdom of God is upon them. In fact, that is a very uh, rare phrase for Matthew to use, the kingdom of God. He defaults to the term kingdom of heaven. So when we see kingdom of God, he is showing here the emphasis between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of Satan. And he's intending to confront them with the truth because in life, everyone's going to have to make a decision. And there's only two choices. You either have a choice for Jesus to reign over you, or you have the choice for Satan to reign over you. And as you are approached with the gospel, you are hearing of the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But by default, you come into this world already with a bent against God. You come into this world by default already in the kingdom on Satan's side. But Jesus has come to overthrow Satan. He calls you to recognize now his power. He calls you not only to recognize his power in him and what he was doing, but his power has been given unto you. This power that he has has been given to you to go and extend and continue his mission until he's called you home. So in verse 30, he pauses to everyone, and now he says... To everyone here, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And are you willing just to halt between those two opinions? 
those two positions? If you're not going to line up with me, by default, you're going to be against me. If you are not going to be gathering with me, you will be scattering. There's no middle position. There's no neutrality. You ever tried to round up a group of sheep with some people? You're trying to herd them in a certain direction? Number one, usually sheep can outrun you. They can be a little jittery. They can do stupid things. So you've got a line and a wall of people and you're trying to walk them all back to safety. If one person, perchance, not implying any persons, not thinking about any persons, but perchance, if you happen to have sheep and your family is trying to herd them and one person turns around and smells the roses and picks up um, and the sheep dart all of a sudden past the person By default, he is causing them to scatter because he was not proactively helping them gather. Now, if you are not on board and deliberate in gathering with Jesus, you are by default one who scatters and who is against him. Don't think that there's any ground in between. Now we come to the last two verses of this passage, which has given rise to quite a lot of fears in the lives of many of God's people. And when we come to these two last verses, we want to approach them with gravity. Because there are a number of people who fear that they may have committed this unforgivable sin. This passage has gripped people with fear, and frankly, we do not want to minimize that which is intended by Jesus in stating this, so we do tread carefully. First of all, as he comes here and says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Over the course of my how many ever years I've been pastoring, I've had a number of people come to me somewhat fearful that perhaps maybe they committed the unpardonable sin or fearful that they may. This is... a. This is ground for a lot of pastoral shepherding, and so I hope maybe to bring some clarity to it now, but also not to relieve its tension. The one thing that we do need to see is the positive declarations that Christ gave here. He gives us a positive aspect of what He does forgive us for. He says that God is merciful to forgive even blasphemy against Him. You are not capable of committing a sin that God cannot forgive. Isn't that wonderful? God says, even if you blaspheme against the Son of Man, He can forgive that. 
And God will forgive any and every sin that you repent of and seek His forgiveness. No matter how big, no matter how heinous, no matter how large, God will forgive you of your sin if you but turn and repent and seek His forgiveness. And oh, the blessedness of repentance, the blessedness of this forgiveness. So we need to be clear on that. But he goes on to say, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, he can forgive any sin. But he says that will will not be. So what is this in reference to? First of all, I think it's important for us to understand that the context here is he's warning the Pharisees and whatever they were doing and what he was warning them about has to do with this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And here they are in the face of undeniable spiritual power of which amazing things were done, the likes of which the world has never seen before, in this person, Jesus the Messiah, and they were attributing all of that to the devil. Yet Jesus was exercising all of that power by the Holy Spirit. Which John 3.34 says, has been given to Him by the Father without measure. So there's no question what Jesus was talking about here. And what brought them to the point of such a hard heart in the face of undeniable evidence that Jesus was the Messiah and they even attributed that power to Satan rather than to God? And the question is, can people do that today when Jesus is no longer here in that capacity among us in that way? The Bible doesn't answer. It may leave that vague with us to strike fear in us. If this can be transgressed today, it would be in the light of those passages like we read earlier from Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Hebrews 6 tells us that it is impossible for some kinds of people to repent. Impossible. So the question is, can people do this today when Jesus is not here? Hebrews 6 says, for it is impossible. And he goes on and gives a long list of things, of qualifications. So let me, let me back the phrase off and, and let me fill in first the sentence without those phrases, and then I'll come back and show you what those phrases were. It is impossible if they fall away to renew them to repentance. That's the structure of the sentence. It is impossible if they fall away to renew them to repentance. Who are the ones that he's speaking about here? Those who, it is impossible for those who have been enlightened. For those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, for those who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, for those who have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, if they turn away, it will be impossible for them to repent unto repentance. Why? 
It says, because they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Both the Spirit and Jesus are mentioned in this passage because they drew so close and drew so near that they have tasted of the good things of God and they have even had proximity to the Spirit of God and the very blessings of the privileges and honors that Christ has provided. And yet when they fall away from that great privileged estate, it would be impossible to bring them back. Only God knows how far a man will go in these ways, don't ever test God in this. Hebrews 10 also speaks of this. It says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy? Who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, just a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What is common in these two passages is that the work of the Spirit is being despised by despising the person and work of Christ. It is the Spirit which points people to Christ. It is the Spirit which applies the work of Christ. It is the Spirit which highlights the person of Christ. It is the Spirit which shows us the work that He has done. And when you despise that, the Spirit illuminates these great truths, applies them to our hearts. And when one comes into the proximity of this great work and the great extent of the privilege which He has given us in the church, And then despises that and walks away from it in a hardened state. This is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's not speaking of one losing their salvation. It is one who has come into the church and been so privileged and in the proximity of the power of God and have tasted the good things of God. And there is a great sense of those who are members of the church in good standing have a great protection and a provision and privileges and honor and benefits and and great things are going on here. And those who play the part and are hypocrites here, if they just are so hardened that they walk away from these things at some point that God knows... It will be beyond what they will be given repentance for. See, this is a warning never to fall away from your first love. We have two kingdoms that are quite contrary one to another. Today, if you're not actively gathering in with Jesus, you by default are scattering against Him. You may be, indeed, being used as an instrument of Satan quite unwillingly and unwittingly. Peter at one time was. So take heed to the sober truth. And yet it is with hope that God will forgive you when you repent and seek His forgiveness. Don't ever be one of... God's people that scatters God's sheep or stands against what he is doing with his people. One of the one of the indications of a cancer in a church is when one stirs up problems. One of the indications that one's heart is not right is when he is the cause of dissensions in the church. One of the problems with people 
that can easily be recognized when they are the cause of the problems and dissensions that causes the sheep of God to scatter. Don't be that. Because you are hard of heart, if that happens, it's because you have lost your first love, because you are moving away, because you are used as an instrument and an agent in the wrong kingdom. There is forgiveness if you but turn and seek Christ once again. Because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. That's true for a congregation. That's true for your family. But Christ will prevail. The power that he has was not from Satan. The power that he has was from the Spirit of God and the power he has brought to this earth, he has given to his people, and we so minister in that very same power. Let's be unified in it, and let's be unified in the faith. Because when the kingdom is unified, not only will it not fail, but it will trample over the feet of all of the enemies to the glory of God, to whom all honor is due. Our gracious Father, we pray that you will guide us in these truths and that you will forever keep and seal our faith that it would never come close to the blasphemy of the Spirit. We pray that where there have been fears in this regard, may those fears do its work in us to keep us from apostasy. Where there are warnings, we pray those warnings would be heeded And we would stay far away from the edge. Oh Lord, give us soft and tender hearts, full of love and desirous of repentance. Not trying to hide our sin, but to confess them to you. And to turn and seek the forgiveness and the empowerment of the Spirit. In which you have equipped us for the work and mission you've given. We pray, Father, that this kingdom... Uh, The diversity here between what you are doing among us and that which Satan is doing in the world would be sharp and clear and distinct. And that we would not mingle with the world. And that you would keep our children protected from it. And that we would not love the world. That you would take our idols away from us. That we would love the Lord our God and Him only will we serve. And so we pray that you would Do a great work in our minds and hearts, even today around the table. May this be a time where we recommit our lives, that we might say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We pray you would seal these truths with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.